Hello and welcome to Family Renewal. I'm Israel Wayne, your host. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as we take a look at faith, family, and culture, all through the lenses of a biblical worldview. This program is a production of the Ultimate Homeschool Radio Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Family Renewal Podcast. I'm Israel Wayne, and this week we are excited to have uh, one of my favorite authors, Dr. Jeff Myers, uh, who is here from Summit Ministries. He's president of Summit Ministries and is an author of many different books and different genres, uh, from leadership to communication to worldviews and so forth. But Jeff has a brand new book that we're going to discuss in this podcast that is called Truth Changes Everything, How People of Faith Transform the World in Times of Crisis. Uh, this is an excellent book, and I'm excited to dive into the content of this with Dr. Jeff. But uh, thank you, Jeff, for uh, coming on the podcast and being willing to talk about this with me. Israel, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. It feels like a long time since we've had a chance to really chat, and we get to talk about truth. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, our paths have been crossed in the mid-90s. I started working in Christian publishing in January of 93, so I'm coming up on 30 years here. And uh, I came across your work uh, somewhere in the mid-90s, and we crossed paths and started uh, communicating. You know, this, this is kind of an interesting tidbit that stood out in my mind that kind of leads us a little into this book about truth a little bit. But I remember one conversation that we had as you were finishing up, I think your doctoral dissertation, because if I remember correctly, you had studied philosophy at the University of Denver. And I remember questioning you about that and saying like, why would you go to that progressive liberal cesspool <laughs> as a place to study? Like you're a Christian, right? And and you said something to the effect of, uh, well, my goal is that I wanna help Christian young people to learn how to think correctly about truth. And so I figure one of the best ways to do that is to go to one of the worst of the worst schools in terms of, of ideology uh, and to, to have them throw everything at me so that I know what these young people are going to be facing and I can help prepare them for the onslaught that they're about to receive. And so you know, here we are all these many years later, probably 25 years later now, and you have this new book that's just come out about truth. And I feel like this is a book that's, I've been waiting 25 years for you to write, but it's it's probably good it's coming out now as opposed to years ago, because this book is really compressed. There's, there's just so much in here, but take me into what motivated you to write this book. I, I know it started all the way back beyond, you know, even that, uh, but, but take me back to the beginning and then the journey of what led you to write this. Well, somebody said it was Abraham Lincoln who said this. Abraham Lincoln gets quoted for a lot of things he probably never said. So does C.S. Lewis, but <laughs> it, it, like, don't trust it, everything it, you read on the internet. It, it, <laughs> so I'll give That's you the quote. Quotes. I'll give you the quote and see if this resonates with your life experience. What is taught on the campus in one generation will be believed and practiced in government and society in the next generation. If I had written this book, Israel, when I was at the University of Denver getting a doctorate in philosophy, I don't think anybody would have believed me. If I had said at that time, 
listen, you need to understand that these professors believe that sex and gender are different things, that there is no such thing as a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. You would never have believed it. Now you see it in the culture in such a dominant way that people will seldom even question it. When I was at the university in this, like you said, it was 20, because it was 25 years ago, the idea that there's such a thing as absolute truth that can be discovered was fiercely attacked. But for a long time, people in society still maintain the belief that you can know truth. Well, we've crossed the tipping point. We are now at a place where a majority of people in the United States of America believe that truth is up to the individual. In fact, 55% of 18 to 29-year-olds say they believe that each person determines their own truth, which means that it's all about you. So you don't say, seek the truth anymore. You say, speak your truth. So I was contemplating all of this Israel and trying to figure out how to write about it. And I got a, I got a diagnosis of cancer. Well, listen, you, you've had a lot of hard things happen to your family. And you know that when bad things happen and life is on the line, your time frame gets really compressed. You begin asking questions like, if this is the last book I ever get to write, is this really what I want to write? And I decided that it was not just to alert people to the fact that we've passed this tipping point. And it is a, it's, it's a, it's serious. In fact, I, I will go so far as to say no civilization has ever gotten this far in its denial of reality and survived unless it had a revival of truth. But at the same time, I came to believe as I wrote that this is that not only our Christians called for this moment to stand, you know, not just a hero's last stand, but that the idea that Jesus is the truth transforms the whole equation. And in times of great crisis, far worse crises than we face in our own time, Jesus followers did that. They did it in science, the arts, politics, justice, education, medicine, even the value of human life. So it's a call more than anything else. Read the stories of these great heroes. Many of these stories have not been told that I'm aware of. At least I hadn't found them in books before that are just incredible, true examples of how everyday quirky people just stood up when the time came and the world literally changed as a result. I'm going to jump into a question that I was asked earlier today, and I'm going to throw it back at you. I was uh, being interviewed by CBN News today, and one of the questions they asked me was, if you were to go back 20 years ago, many of the conversations that we're having now, we were not having then. And they said that even if someone was not a Christian, there was sort of a consensus about certain things within the culture that people just accepted and that they knew from what we would call common sense or, you know, I think philosophers might call it natural law or something. But the idea that a, a biological female is not a male or that it's not okay for us to kill a young child after they've been born uh, if they have a birth defect. 
or some of these concepts that are actually being discussed by politicians and discussed in the news media that are actually gaining traction within the society. And the question that they asked me, which I'm going to pose to you, is how is it that we've gotten to the place where people can't just use common sense and get to the right answer on these issues? Why is it that we're actually embracing irrationality now? Oh, man. Well, there are two... There are two ways I want to go with that, and I'm trying to decide which one is. You can go down both rabbit trails. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, nice, a good rabbit on both. Feel free uh, to chase them. Both. Yeah, there's a good rabbit on both. It's it's nice to have a long format kind of program like you've got here because you can uh, dig into these things a little bit. Yeah. One thing is, people have come to believe that freedom, the kind of freedom that the founders of the United States offered in the Constitution is primarily personal autonomy. So it's not just we have the freedom for something, it's we have the freedom from. You know, government can't tell me what to do with my body or whatever else it is, but it's personal autonomy. So people look at this and say, that's what it means to be an American, that you, you, know, you get to decide your own truth. Nobody else can tell you what's going on. But the second thing is, it's kind of a, there is a sense that reality itself is under attack. And, and what I mean by that is, is, is not just that people, because when I was growing up there, you know, postmodernism was huge and man, it's come back with a vengeance, but people would say, well, you just can't know reality. Reality is not objectively knowable by us. We're too limited in our capacity to understand it. But that has tr transformed or that it's just, it's, there's a completely new mindset out there that says, not only is it too difficult to figure out reality, but our perceptions are in fact the reality. So I remember reading this uh, Northwestern University professor, Melville Herskovitz, saying even our perceptions of physical space, distance, and time are through an, what he called an enculturative screen. In other words, if you, you don't believe that two plus two equals four because it actually does. You believe that two plus two equals four because everybody you know believes that. And, and you feel ashamed if you don't believe it, so therefore you just believe it but it's not actually knowably true. And now that idea has, has applied to, to everything. I, I mean, what could be clearer than that there is a difference between male and female, that humans are dimorphous. There are 6,500 biological differences between males and females. But if you can get a young person to look at boys and girls and say, there is no difference, then you can convince them of anything. I think we're actually more set up for a kind of nightmarish totalitarianism than we've ever been. Um, and I, I'm not the only one saying that. I remember when Hannah Arendt was writing about the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was he was the Nazi war criminal who escaped, and they captured him, took him to Jerusalem, and put him on trial in the 1960s. 
And she said, it's not the convinced Nazis or the convinced communists that are the best subjects of a totalitarian state. It's people who have lost their ability to discern reality and can no longer know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And that's where we are. You know, the great historian Will Durant said a civilization is not conquered from without until it has destroyed itself within. So I, I wish I could just come on and say, here's all the great news. But there is a huge call for all people who know the truth to say, I'm going to speak up now. And that's that's the other part of my answer to, to the CBN question. If they were to ask me, we do a lot of polling at Summit Ministries. We do major pieces of research, George Barna with McLaughlin Group, Gray Matter, some other organizations, not only to study our own graduates, but just to see where the American people are. 75% of Americans say they think the transgender agenda has gone too far. Then we ask them, well, why don't you say anything? 40% said they never say any. So half, more than half the people who say they think it's gone too far, never say anything. And we asked them, why not? Some said, because I'm afraid of being canceled. Others said, because I don't want to offend. And others said, because I don't know what to say. So it's not just that we've sort of lost the, the minds and hearts of the rising generation when it comes to knowing that truth actually exists. It's that the people who do know that truth actually exists won't say so. Well, there's another thing that you mention in your book. You don't dwell on it long, but you allude to it. And that is that Gen Z, and we don't want to just categorize everybody by demographics because right. there's bleed over from yes. one generation to another. But e each of the successive generations does have its own distinguishing characteristics. And there, yeah. there are def defining attributes that, that tend to generally be true about these, these demographic groups. So Gen Z tends to actually look at a scenario where you're saying that we need to speak up and say the truth. But they actually, the way they process, the, the way that they interpret communication is that if what you say hurts someone else by a subjective definition of hurt, that's wrong. Yeah. That's morally wrong. And right. so so right and wrong, uh, in some ways, in their worldview, is interpreted by whether what you say, what you say is offensive to them. And so it's it's wrong to say something to someone that will be triggering to them. So I'd like you to respond to that because you know your book is speaking about the concept of objective truth. But if if somebody believes that saying something that's triggering to someone else is objectively wrong, uh, you have a hurdle there. Yeah, uh, no question about it. And the vast majority of young adults say they believe. That if what you say offends someone or hurts their feelings, it is wrong. So right and wrong is now defined not only as what's factually correct, but how other people take it. So if there's any possibility that someone might be offended by it, it's not, it can't be true. Okay. So how do you process through that? Well, there are a lot of different aspects to this, but I think the key thing, and this is what I thought was unique about this book. And I, I hope people find a lot of interesting things in it that can help them, especially communicate with young adults and get a vision for hope in our own time. But what I thought was unique about it is pointing out something that seems rather obvious, but very few people have ever talked about that from a Christian worldview, truth exists. 
but it isn't just a set of logical propositions. It isn't just a mathematical formula. It isn't an attempt to depersonalize the world in the service of brutal reality. Rather, it is a, an intentional personalization of truth, that Jesus is the truth. Jesus said, if you follow my teachings, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's John 8, 31 and 32. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The truth exists, and it's not just a set of logical propositions that you throw in somebody's face to gain power over them. It's a person. So God's response when in the crises of truth is to become more personal, more incarnational, more relational, not less. So I, I sometimes wonder if what this rising generation is saying when they say, I just don't want to offend anyone, is that they've missed the entire point. The point is that you are it's not like two people butting heads with one another. It's two people side by side pursuing the truth. And, and you do that through asking questions, through having conversations, through digging in, through talking about the talk. There are all sorts of ways to do it. But it, it's really important that we understand you know, I know it's popular for people to say, man, that's just the facts, deal with it. Uh, but that's not going to be persuasive to the rising generation. They are, they are not in that place. If you say that, they might say, okay, interesting. You have an interesting perspective. I don't want to talk to you anymore. But you're not going to make any progress in the relationship, nor will they make progress toward the truth unless they understand that you're bringing it relationally. We think of a DNA double helix at Summit Ministries. Truth is one strand, relationship is the other. And they always intertwine and they always connect through those little nucleotides. Yeah, so the postmodern ethos is that we're supposed to be relational, communal, incarnational. And what you are presenting in your book is that Christianity is not merely a didactic set of philosophical propositions or, or logical syllogisms but it actually is embodied relationally and incarnationally in Jesus Christ in a person. And that that message, you, if I'm understanding it correctly, that that message will resonate more likely within a postmodern culture than, than a merely uh, abstract didactic informational prose kind of uh, messaging. Well, certainly. And, and you're always communicating the truth, but you're always doing it in the context of relationship. So I point out to our young staffers when we bring them here, we have in our Summit Ministries two-week programs, we have one trained staff person, mentor, for every five students. So there's a lot of training that goes into this. And I tell them, truth without relationship leads to arrogance. But relationship without truth leads to apathy. And I don't just mean that by way of, you know, clever phrasing for a sermon that I like to give. I mean that quite literally, if you follow the postmodern idea that no one has direct access to the truth, it always ends up leading to alienation. What can you know? Can you know that justice is really real? Nope, you can't actually. There's no such thing as justice that exists independent of our ability to perceive it. What about the words we use? If I utter a sentence and you say you disagree, how could you say you disagree? You can't possibly even know what I said because words mean different things to me than they mean to you. So complete alienation is the natural result of that postmodern worldview. 
And what I think we as Christians lost track of over time is in just trying to discern what the facts are and throw them out there and say, just deal with it. We lost the reality that any worldview other than the one that is incarnational in the way I'm describing through Jesus is going to lead you away from human community to the point where at very best, it's just tribal people who happen to see things the way you do are the ones you hang out with and you ignore everybody else. That's not a way to build a community. It's not a way to build your mind. It's not a way to build any kind of a good society. So it's the intentional rejection of that on the part of Jesus followers in history that really began the turnaround. For the listeners who are not familiar with you, uh, one thing that I would like to kind of explain to you about Jeff, from me having watched his career for you know twenty five plus years, is and and I don't want to caricature you in the wrong way, so feel free to correct me if if you don't see yourself in this way. But I've always felt that your gift was, and you're in the two primary focuses of of what you have done, you know, as a body of work over time, uh, has always been truth and relationships, truth and relationships with uh, a fairly heavy emphasis on how we communicate truth in the context of relationships, <laughs> because that's also yeah. been, you know, a big part of what you've done, how we embody it through leadership, how we communicate it verbally through written communication, but, but, but communication is a means it's a medium. And, and that truth has always been the goal. Um, but your emphasis has always been, uh, to, to be, um, kind and to be, uh, sensitive in the way that the information is presented. So for those of you who like apologetics, which I do, uh, when you get this book, Truth Changes Everything, one thing that you're going to find that's kind of refreshing with it is it's a unique balance of being really like C.S. Lewis-ish in terms of the logic that's presented so that uh, you don't have a lot of wiggle room. Like you're going to be presented with really tight logical arguments that that are going to be very difficult for a skeptic to dismantle but the tone of it is so unlike the the kind of screaming at each other tone that we've gotten used to from the talking heads and and the news media and and you know the the political pundits and so so there's just this i think modeling even in the book itself of of what Jeff has tried to do in his leadership training of teaching people how do you stand firm on the issues but how do you present it in such a way that you're not needlessly alienating people? And uh, there's not a question in there. I just am trying to explain that to people who may say, well, I don't know this Jeff Myers guy, but I, I know I appreciate it because that's, that that's been my goal in my entire life. I don't, I don't put a lot of stock in just being right. That's not my goal. I don't go to bed at night saying, well, I don't care what anybody else thinks I'm right. I want to go to bed at night having led people to the truth. I've always been guided by Paul when he wrote to Timothy. You know, the book, the the book in the Bible, 2 Timothy, is a letter from the Apostle Paul to his protege, thinking it might be the last thing he ever gets to write to him. That's really powerful. I personally relate to that now, having gone through cancer. Every conversation you have, you think this could be the last one. Every letter you write, this could be the last one. Every book could be the last one. And thank the Lord, I'm in remission from cancer. Uh, but I still, I still sense that. And you know what the Apostle Paul told Timothy? 
he said, reject foolish and ignorant disputes because you know that they lead to quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel, but must be gentle to everyone, able to teach and patient, instructing his opponents with gentleness. Perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Then they may escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So God's truth is relational in its nature. If we don't communicate it that way, then we're not telling the whole truth. That's kind of how I see it. And, uh, you know, I'm in these conversations all of the time. You do a lot of media uh, and, you know, you probably find yourself in these situations. We're actually debating with people who completely disagree with you. They take the total opposite approach, but how you treat people like that over time is hugely indicative of the fullness of the truth that you embrace. It is. And, and one of the things I love about your book is that you move us beyond merely seeking to embrace a static set of doctrinal beliefs. You're not against that. I mean, that's important. I'm very much for it. That mm-hmm. You push beyond that to say that that these truths are reflective of, of a person, Jesus Christ. But you go farther than the standard evangelical church who will say uh, the answer to all of the questions is Jesus. Uh, and so, you know, Jesus is your personal savior and you, you need to invite Jesus into your heart. You get to go to heaven when you die. And oh, by the way, attend church and invite people, you know, <laughs> um, right. you go beyond and, that and give. <laughs> yeah. And give uh, you go beyond that. And you actually imply that Christianity has had historically and does have significant contributions that it makes to world history. And it has a significant influence on how we think about various spheres uh, of our everyday existence, that Christianity actually matters in a culturally relevant sense. Can you explain sort of how you flesh that out in the book? Yeah, I'd love to, because I meet so many people who say, well, I'm a Christian, but you know, I work in science. I'm in STEM. has nothing to do with my faith. Yes, it does. It has everything to do with your faith. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm in the arts. You know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. It has nothing to do with my faith. No, it absolutely does in every area. And so that's one thing I'm I'm really hoping will come out of this book is parents will say, I'm going to get this for my kids. We're going to read it. And I want to talk with them about it because I want them to see that Jesus is at the heart of everything. As John Stott, the Anglican priest from um, England who passed away not that long ago, would say, Christ is at the center. All else is circumference. So here's an example. One of the touch points in the book is going back to find crises in history, which were far worse than what we experience now. I know that sounds really morbid, but there have been. In fact, in the 1300s, the first outbreak of the Black Death, the the bubonic plague, could have been one of the worst moments in all of human history. A third to half the people in the countries for which we have records died. And into this, there were people like Catherine of Siena. Um, she was just a she was just a young woman, but she she moved toward the sick people rather than away from them. And everybody was saying, "Catherine, get out!" You know, anybody who's got money or connections needs to get out because you're going to die. And she said, um, "No, actually, I want to be with Jesus, and I know where Jesus is. Jesus is sitting with the suffering, 
So I'm going to go sit with the suffering. Her courage in doing that began to encourage other people who were in the pastoral ministry to begin doing the same thing. When we look back at records, we find that the clergy had far higher death rates during the Black Death than the population. Why? Because they weren't running away from the problem. They were running toward it. Well, in the wake of the Black Death, of course, with so many people dead, the whole economy had to be reinvented. Arts, everything else had to change. Out of that came the Renaissance. Out of that came the Reformation. Out of that came modern medical care and modern science. The, and the church was significantly involved in it, but it was individual Christians too. Uh, sometimes Catherine had to fight against the church leadership herself in order to be able to serve people the way Jesus had called her to serve them. But our whole understanding of the value of human life came from people like that who were attempting to live out a biblical worldview as it regards human nature. And then medical care came out of that and science. I could tell so many stories there. I, I can't remember when I last counted them, but it seems like I was, I told 75 different stories in the book, some of which I know have not been told in print, or, or at least when I talk to historians say, have you heard this story? Have you heard this part of this story? Cause this is in the research. This is in the original documents. Uh, but a lot of them haven't been told. And I just, I really feel like, man, there's such power in knowing those stories because what do you, what do you need in a moment where you just don't think you can go on? Sometimes you, it's not just enough for somebody to say, Hey, listen, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You can do this. You just need to hear, well, here's somebody who did it. Somebody like you, somebody like me, you can, you can make it. Yeah. I love how your book kind of morphs from talking about the importance of truth and the need for truth and then the incarnational reality of truth in Jesus Christ to explaining how, uh, quite contrary to what modern revisionist history has told us about how Christianity is a history of oppression, how Christianity has made such positive contributions to areas of science, to bioethics, to education, to the arts, to law and government, uh, which spills over into the the political realm, uh, into into all aspects and spheres of culture. Uh, I think this is so important, especially for our young people to understand. Because if if you go to a government school today, uh, you're probably going to graduate, especially university. You're probably going to graduate knowing a few things about Christianity. Um, the Christians burned witches. Um, that there was the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, and that missionaries went and oppressed people, you know, uh, indigenous tribes and people groups uh, through colonization and basically imposing their uh, their white man's religion and, and illnesses and right. <laughs> all yeah. that on, yeah. on on people who are who are quite happy and content before they got there and and their lives are ruined. Th this book paints a very different picture of Christianity historically, and like you said, you tell it through stories that are not the typical, oh, we've heard that a million times. What motivated you to, to start studying some of these stories of how Christianity has impacted the world around us? Yeah, and I'm, I'm happy to answer that question, but I, I do want to point out that there is a lot of revisionist history I felt like I had to undo in this book. It feels discouraging at times because you think there are so many lies out there, and they're just completely false. It's not even like they have a grain of truth in them. So I thought, well, I'm just going to put hundreds of 
endnotes in here uh, to document all of these things. And hopefully that will help people see, oh, this is, this is really real. We need to rethink the way we were taught about all of these things. Uh, but why, I think, what was your question? Why these stories? What motivated you to start studying um, these, you know, early stories and and just even researching it and looking into these heroes? Well, I, you know, I realized that when you are obeying God, the little things you do may never be noticed by people around you, but can have an earth-shaking influence into the future. And so that's why I went back and looked at them. I, I thought, wow, these were these were people like me. They were, oh, some of them were, some of the scientists I look at, they're just so brilliant. It's almost impossible to describe them. But very many of the people were, they were just doing what God had called them to do. I love Jesus. Therefore, I'm going to be the very best scientist I can be. I love Jesus. Therefore, I'm going to try to write the very best constitution that I can write. And a lot of these people went to their graves feeling like they hadn't succeeded, but the impact was enormous. So can I just tell one story? Yeah, absolutely. So one of my favorites, because I think it, if there's nothing that we do in any day of our lives that is not affected by this man, his name was John Wycliffe in the 1300s. He was a professor at Oxford university who felt compelled by the Lord to translate the Bible into English. That was problematic for a couple of reasons. First of all, the church authorities were strongly against it. Uh, and why were they strongly against it? They were strongly against it because they believed that Latin was the finest language. And to translate the Bible from Latin into anything else would be to make it vulgar, like adding curse words into it. The second thing is that English was not a well-formed language. It, there wasn't a standardized English at that time. Well, Wycliffe expressed his viewpoint this way. He said, look, I, I might get killed for this, but I'm going to tell you how I see it. Moses heard from God in his own language. The disciples heard from Jesus in their own language. People need to hear from God today in their own language. So similar to what Martin Luther did much later in Germany, in, in England, John Wycliffe translated the Bible into English. Well, Israel, in order to do that, he had to invent words. There are actually 1,100 words in the Wycliffe version translation of the Bible that are used in that translation for the first time in English. Words like mystery, treasure, persuasion, communication, even the word wordy is used for the first time in his translation. Well, what happened? He standardized the English language. Well, how does that affect our lives every day? English is the number one trade language of the world. The entire world economy has been built on the English language, which was standardized by a guy who risked death hundreds of years ago because he thought the Bible needed to be put into English. Did he have any sense that he would actually create a global economic revolution? I doubt it. I mean, how could you possibly know that? He just felt compelled to communicate with people and bring Christ to them in the form of communication to which they were accustomed. That's a fabulous story. And I think when you think about the fact that people actually died uh, because of their belief in the objective meaning of words, um, yeah. it, it really kind of gives you an anchor point that makes you want to push back against the 
deconstructionist postmodern idea that words have no objective meaning and that language uh, is completely subjective and needs to be deconstructed. It's it's a um, uh, it's important for us to know these stories uh, because you know men like Wycliffe and um, and Tyndale, uh, you know these men suffered and paid dearly for you know trying to communicate objective truths in objective language. Yeah. Well, the leaders, they, they, um, William Tyndale, as the name you mentioned, was killed. He was strangled and then burned at the stake because he wanted to translate the Bible into English. And he did a wonderful job too, by the way. I don't know if you've ever read the Tyndale translation. Uh, I have a copy of it. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's, it's fabulous. Yeah. You can't read all the way through scripture because he got killed before he, he finished it, but, but it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I can't so much of the the nice ways we use English today stem from guys like that. Wycliffe, right. you know, he lived his life, passed away. They were still really mad at him. After he died, uh, his bones were dug up and burned and then crushed. <laughs> so uh, but <laughs> well, I, don't, be- not, I just doubt if he cared at that point. But but you see, <laughs> you, you, you have yeah, to right. take you have to take the risk. You have to take the risk. So in science. All kinds of believers had a huge impact. Rodney Stark, who was a professor and historian at Baylor University, just recently passed away, said that when he went back and looked at all of the discoveries and inventions that constitute modern science, of the 52 individuals who made those discoveries and created those inventions, only one of them was an atheist. One. I I never knew that. When I was in college, I was led to believe that they all were atheists. Or at least, you know, they were just culturally Christian, but they were kind of atheists on the side. Otherwise, they never could have become great scientists. That's simply not true. In fact, John Lennox, a retired professor of mathematics at Oxford University, says that two-thirds of the people who have ever won the Nobel Prize in science have claimed Christian as their affiliation. There is not a battle between faith and science in the way that it's usually conceived. Rather, it was people's faith that there is a God. God is a God of order. God is not in the earth, so we don't have to worship it. You know, a lot of people who believe that the earth is magical won't study it because it's too holy. But they said, well, no, God created the world. The world is good, but it is not God. Um, There's a stability in nature. So an experiment you do at time A and you do at time B, you're actually experimenting in the same world. These things seem so basic to us now that nobody even talks about them. But people did not believe that until Christians came along and started actually outlining the principles on which we base all of science today. Yeah, I think when people read your book, they're going to have a very different view of Christianity than what they have been taught, particularly if they went through a secular educational paradigm. Um, And I, I love that you point out in your chapter on education that there's a vast difference between schooling and education. And even people who have been, you know, schooled, extensively uh, may need to may find that they need to go back and re-educate themselves on some of these things. And, and this book, uh, Truth Changes Everything by Dr. Jeff Myers is a, a great way to do that. I'm going to just uh, summarize it real quickly, and then I'm going to throw it back to you for any final thoughts that you may have or things you want to share with the uh, the viewers and listeners. I have studied uh, apologetics and biblical worldview, you know, s- for 30 years and have hundreds of books on the topic there are a few titles that come to the top uh, that come to my mind immediately as like the, 
you have to read this. Like this is one of the the top 10 or, you know, these are, these are just the go-to books that everybody has to read this. There's lots of good apologetics books, but I think of books like Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I think of Anything Ever by Francis Schaeffer, <laughs> the complete works of Francis Schaeffer. Hard to pull one book out from, from him. Um, I think of books like uh, Understanding the Times, which you actually had a significant part in helping to write and develop that with Dr. David Noble and, and the whole that whole worldview uh, set that's available now through Summit Ministries. And I highly recommend people go visit summit.org and, and check that out because there's, there's a, a set of three books that are now available uh, to help you to, to think about all categories of life from a biblical worldview. That one's there. Universe Next Door by Dr. James Sire. That comes to my mind. Harry Blameyer's Christian Christian Mind. Yeah, there's, yeah, but you're you're right. There there are a few key people who are just Chuck, uh, Chuck Olson's How Now Shall yes. uh, We Live. Mm-hmm. You know that was his his epic. You know I think in a nutshell, like that that's probably the the, the one book that I think uh, Total Truth by by Nancy Percy. You know, there's just some of those that are, you know what I'm saying? Like they're the the, the top of the the class. Well, I'm gonna go out on a limb and I'm gonna put this one up there. I'm going to say that this one, Truth Changes Everything, is is up there in that category of books that if you want your teenager, your young adult to have a biblical, comprehensive biblical worldview, you're going to have have to have this in your short list of books. This is one that you you don't bypass. There are lots of great apologetics books, but but this is this is in the top 20 uh, of the books that I've read. And, and I think it's because literally this book, I feel you know, just came out of 30, 35 years of life for you. And, you know, you nailed it, brother. So I just want to put my personal stamp of endorsement on that and then throw it back to you to say, you know, what, what would you like to encourage people as they're considering grabbing a copy of this? Yeah, I'm, I'm humbled. I really don't know what to say. Uh, you've just listed all the people that I wish I could have dinner with. (laughs) And believe me, I would be asking questions, but the, I I think what I hope that my main contribution is to this whole discussion, to the Christian community, to our world at this moment, is that our hope doesn't come from how smart we are or how smart we think we are or how right we think we are. It, it It's not belief as a feeling. In other words, the the value of belief is not that we can muster it. The value is what you believe in. And when I read scripture from beginning to end, I see the revelation pointing to and emanating from Jesus. He is at the center of it. And I remember reading a children's book once and said, at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. The disciples understood this. When Jesus first called them, in fact, when he called Andrew, Andrew came with him, was going to hang out with him, said, I got to go get my brother, Simon Peter. This is all recorded in John chapter one. When Andrew found Simon, he said, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And then Philip, when he was called, went and found his buddy, Nathaniel, and said, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets. It comes, it comes back to Jesus. And it's because of Jesus that truth changed everything in the past. And it's because of Jesus that truth still changes everything. The question we've got to ask ourselves is, will I have the courage to do it? And 
it wasn't that the people in the Bible times didn't, you know, it's not like they had the courage and we just don't have it. The number one command of scripture is do not fear. You know, one of the things that I love about your writing too is that it's accessible. So this book is really documented. There's just an immense amount of footnotes. So it's he's not shooting from the hip here. This is well-researched. It is very well documented. Uh, you can go back to original sources and, and, and do further reading. But Dr. Jeff has a great way of taking huge, big concepts and presenting them in a way that ordinary people can understand them. So if you're feeling a little intimidated or put off by the thought of, you know what, I'm not a philosopher, I'm not a theologian, I don't know if I'm going to be able to understand this, I can barely spell apologetics, I, I feel like this may go over my head. I just want to encourage you that this is a book that is accessible. Um, a high schooler can read and understand this book. And so it is something that I would strongly encourage you to pass on to your your pastor, to pass on to your church staff, your your youth leaders at your church. But consider reading it as a family. I love that you mentioned that, Jeff, because I think some of the best conversations that I've had with my teenagers, and this is going to blow your mind. I have a uh, a 22-year-old, a 20-year-old, and I have four teenagers living at home <laughs> among among my 11 children. So uh, it's hard, hard for you probably to think of me as having kids that are that old. Um, I but, love it. But some of the best conversations I've had with my own teenagers have been you know, sitting around reading together and then just listening to the feedback and, and sometimes the pushback and to be able to just have that dialogue back and forth. There's just things that happen in that dynamic that don't happen when I just give them a book and say, hey, read this. And so I love that you suggested that. I hope many families will uh, take it upon themselves to do that. So what's the best way for people to um, get in touch with you if they want to or, or to connect with what you're doing? Well, if you want to get the book, I would just Google Truth Changes Everything. There, you'll, Wherever you like to buy books, it'll be available there. But I'd also love to encourage people to consider a Summit Ministries two-week program. If you've got young people 16 to 22 years of age, they can come study with us, with my colleagues and me in Manitou Springs, Colorado, or Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And in those two-week programs, we find that young adults have a significant experience with the Lord, building a genuine Christian community, feeling safe to ask all of their difficult questions, and then coming out convinced of the truth of Jesus, not because someone forced them to be convinced, but because they've really thought it through and prayed it through. And in the context of community, they've come to see that it's true. And those programs have been so powerful in my own life, but also in the lives of others. So it could be a shaping experience this coming summer. Just go to summit.org and find out more. Very good. I'd also highly recommend that if you have a conference and you're looking for a great speaker uh, who would be able to address cultural issues in a relevant way. Um, there are no speakers who are better than Dr. Jeff. So uh, can please consider contacting him probably through Summit and um, invite him to keynote your conference. You know, again, there's so many great resources. Uh, make sure that you uh, check out the other books that he's written as well, because he has so many great books that he's written apart from the new one uh, and, and great resources that Summit um, just continues to release. In fact, um, Jeff, I just downloaded uh, a, a video series that Summit just put out that uh, I haven't had a chance to watch with my teenagers because they've been gone. My son's been on a mission trip to Ecuador, my 18-year-old. 
And wow. so, but but we're wanting to watch through that as a family. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, that that's free and available to anybody who wants to download it. It's a course called Now We Live. You can just go to nowwelive.com. And it's Christian, it's it's notable Christians, people you probably would recognize their face or their name, like Lee Strobel, Kurt Cameron, Elisa Childers, others, talking about why they believe a Christian worldview is true. And we our goal was to put these video segments together that are no longer than 15 minutes and then allow churches, small groups, families to talk about the content. Uh, the, but the way you put it with the way you do that with your kids is real so important. It's not even that they have to agree with you. It's that you've got to talk about it. They've got to start articulating what they believe. If they grow up and think, yeah, this is what my dad believed, oh, man, in times of crisis, they're, they're not going to hold to it. Because why would they? why would they suffer for what you believed? But if they know in their hearts and in their minds that this is the truth, then we may have raised a generation that can help turn the tide. Well, I want to thank you for your service uh, for these, these many years. I don't want to make you feel old, but these, <laughs> these many years that you've been serving the Christian community, I've benefited from your work. Uh, it's influenced my work, and I know so many others have benefited from it as well. And so thank you for uh, for what you're doing. I want to encourage all of our viewers and listeners to just continue to pray for uh, Dr. Jeff. He's, he still has um, you know, checkups and so forth. The cancer's in remission. We're praising God for that. And we're very thankful. Uh, long, hard battle for you. Um, we, we were, my family was praying for you mm, through that. You. Uh, so, but we want to continue to pray for you on, on that front. But just uh, also, you know, Jeff's a frontline guy and frontline guys get shot at a lot. And you know, they get kind of beat up out there in the culture war. And um, so so keep him in your prayers and his family in, in, their, in your prayers because, you know, they're, they're doing an important work and, and Summit Ministries and the leaders there. So, Jeff, again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on the Family Renewal Podcast. Uh, I appreciate it very much. Well, thanks, Israel. It's been fun to journey alongside of you at a distance. I'm so proud of you and the work that you're doing. So grateful for you. All right. God bless. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation. For more information on Family Renewal, the writing and speaking ministry of Brooke and Israel Wayne, please visit FamilyRenewal.org.